How's it going, Meat Suits? Welcome back to Read It and Weep. We are a podcast that used to be about books. I'm your host, Alex Falcone, recording today in North Koreatown, Los Angeles. Um, our show is made possible by the fabulous Meat Buddies, the incredibly generous, good-looking, and uh, kind-hearted Meat Buddies who all have supported us. You can support us that way by going to metreon.com, and I will also thank you, are smart and kind and generous and beautiful and you know a little bit saucy you know like the right amount of sass you're you guys are perfect anyway patreon.com if you want to help support our show um also if you don't want to give us any money which i get (laughs) obviously um if you don't uh you can still rate us or review us on apple podcasts i have not i had not looked at those in like three years and i want to say even during the time where we repeatedly said on this show that four stars was plenty a lot of five-star reviews. You guys are much nicer nice. than I feel like we even asked for, let alone deserve. Um, uh, somebody referred to us as sexy uh, in a review, which was All fun. All three of us? Am I included? They said the podcast was sexy, wow. and the person's name sounded an awful lot like your girlfriend, Hunter. Oh, okay. That, so I suspect it was about you. Yeah, it's a while that's ago. That's old. I, I um, remember her telling me that she was going to do that. I also we also had a review from somebody who listens to your other show who said that this is their f- second favorite show about Twilight Imperium. Awesome. Yeah, we I don't talk about that enough. We should. There's not a lot of other ones, right? If we're sne- well, if we select the top two, it's in the subtext of what we talk about a lot. Yeah, I feel everything like we do is meta game. The more, the more <laughs> you understand the game, the more you really get out of this show. I think. Is oh, there yeah. is there a lot of meta game in in that where you like have to? Oh like- my god! I mean, most of the game is happening in your imagination. Oh. In my opinion. I guess it's, I mean like meta game is in like. You manipulating your the other opponents into thinking yeah, you're playing exactly. a certain I, way. Yeah. No, I know what metagame means. Oh, okay, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but I wasn't yeah. trying to using it right. I don't know. There is a a lot of meta happening right. in the game all the time. Yeah. Well, well, now that you guys know that I'm able to check it, this is a good time to go write us and review us on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts because it's been a minute. Let me introduce you to our panel today. First up, he's in Southeast Portland at Anthony Lopez PT2 on Twitter. It's Mr. Anthony Lopez. Please, Alex. My father was Anthony Lopez. Call me Professor Lopez. Yeah, my father didn't go to school. He He's not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. man. He doesn't have that title. But yeah, call him Anthony. But today I am Professor Lopez and Alex. I want you to uh, sit up, get your elbows off the desk, and oh, uh, yeah. forward today, buddy. Am I going to have to take your phone? No, okay. no, of course I would never. Because okay. I will get back to the end of school year. I don't, I don't know how this um will play, but I did in take calculus in college, where you were allowed to have your graphing calculator with you, and you can program a lot of lines of text into a graphing calculator. Turns out you can. Like, I've the seen entire people, text of your book. I've seen people play, you know, Dune on those, so yeah. you can do yeah. anything on them. Wait, yeah. Dune? Not Dune. No, Dune. Okay, yeah. I thought you meant Dune, like the old RPS. No, That'd be no, cool. no, no. Yeah. Like Anthony spent ten years trying to make a Dune game on his calculator, and it almost destroyed him. Uh, uh, like his own Dune game that yeah. is just yeah. going to be on the calculator. It, it was beautiful. Though. It was really yeah. beautiful. I mean, it was. I have never read the book. I've only seen the David Lynch movie backwards twice. So <laughs> I, I was trying to go off that. <laughs> um, you know, but like I said, I've only seen it backwards and twice. 
All right. So the our our other panelist, and yeah, I'm sorry I didn't call you by your full title, Professor Professor Anthony Lopez. Our other, possibly for the last time, Professor. He's at Hunbun on Letterboxd from the woods of Arkansas. It's Mr. Professor Hunter Donaldson. Howdy, y'all. I'm Professor Hunter. <laughs> you can go the other direction. I can do both. Um, I just, I just wanted to hold out, and also I thought that the joke was dead last week. So I thought it was a good time to bring it back. Helium. Yeah, 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 yeah. To be clear, when I said uh, possibly the last time, I don't mean you as it appearing on the show, but as, as the title of professor, which was a season no, three. Time. What, what he means yeah. is that there's a piece coming out in the Atlantic tomorrow. <laughs> that's really going to oh, really fuck your life up. Oh, oh, man. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm on the verge of getting canceled. It's yeah, yeah, your life won't be here, you know. I uh-huh. feel like uncomfortable joking about this. Um, This is... um. <laughs> You are you, you guys are lucky to be listening to this episode at home because this is the final exam day in slightly condescending film school. It's been an incredible season three. I've learned a lot. Or have I? We'll find out. Yeah. But before we get into our film school finals, what else have you guys been watching this week? Anthony, start us off. Uh, yeah, I, I've had a good week. Watched a lot of really good stuff. But what I want to talk about is sort of uh, a sort of accidental uh, film festival my wife and I had this week when we watched a oh, bunch um, of movies that are thematically related that we didn't even what well, we kind of planned on the first two but the third one uh, we didn't think about it until afterwards but we watched um, over two nights my wife had never seen Citizen Kane uh, so we watched that ooh. and Mank back to back which was arguably too much of like great film in one like five hour period it's honestly kind of fucked me up for the last week just seeing that much solid good movie I don't um, know anything about Mank, it has scary old man in it what is Mank? Uh, Mank is david fincher's new movie it is written by jack fincher uh david fincher's father uh mm. it is loosely inspired by the writing of citizen kane and uh herman mm. mankiewicz who was the the writer main writer of Citizen Kane had to fight to get uh, credit for it, uh, but yeah, he was you know a casual relations uh, relation of a host like he knew the host family and that's where he got a lot of the in- inside information for uh, Citizen Kane and it is phenomenal. I definitely would pit it. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, yeah, I would put it kind of middle pack of Fincher, but like middle Fincher is still like better than most directors' best movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I, this, the art on this is super interesting. I am, I, and I, I like most things Fincher does. I'm the intrigued. performances across the board, the screenplay is super, super sharp. Um, there's some really great stuff about, uh, you know, that is super relevant today, especially because, you know, you think, you know, so much of the source material for Citizen Kane and sort of being there in that time, being a part of it, you know, these were people who were living in sort of the rise of Hitler in America and the wealth sort of gap that was coming up, you know, post-depression. There's a lot of stuff that is like happening then that re- revenate, like resonates very deeply with what's going on nowadays. Yeah, um, yeah, I I absolutely loved it. Um, there's a monologue by the guy who plays um, uh, Mayor uh, 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 L. What's the guy who owned MGM? Can't think of his name right now. Metro um, Goldwyn or Mayor? Yeah, it was the Mayor one, but he's a character in it, and he like Jim, John, Edward, 
Sam. Right? I thought it was his Sam? name. Sam Goldwyn. Sam that Goldwyn. Right? Yeah, he has a he has a great monologue about the magic of Hollywood. Is that it is a it's an industry when the only thing people get for their money is a memory, and the per, the thing you buy still belongs to the man who sold it to you. That's the oh. magic of movie making. Uh, it's just filled with great dialogue like that. Um, and yeah. then, coincidentally, we were looking for something kind of frivolous the next night to watch. Uh, so he put on Newsies to watch Young mm-hmm. Christian Bell. Uh, and that's also about newspapers and post-depression era America. Yeah. We didn't even realize it, but it was just like a lot of a lot of sort of pre-World War II uh, newspaper tycoons uh, and the effects they had on the on different people in this household over the last week, and it's been uh, pretty interesting. But all good movies. But definitely yeah. check them out. Definitely watch. I we I wasn't Make on this. On Netflix? Yes, I wasn't on the Citizen Kane episode, but something I've said about right. Citizen Kane uh, on this podcast before is that it's it's a gr- legitimately a great movie. I think it's one of those movies that like it's legend as like the greatest movie ever made pits a lot of people off because they think it's going to be very stuffy or boring uh but it's not it's actually incredibly contemporary uh it works as a film it's very funny it doesn't take itself super seriously uh so definitely give it a shot don't let the um the sort of hype overwhelm you uh especially if you're going to watch mink because i think if you don't have a pretty good sense of what Citizen Kane is about, um, well, I don't know if the movie won't work entirely, but it definitely works a lot better the more you know about Citizen Kane. Uh, so I would definitely suggest uh, having seen it at least once before. I'm gonna I'm gonna go next because I also did a film festival, although mine was a little more on purpose. Um, which is uh, we talked about this during Hearts of Darkness, but you recommended some other making of movie documentaries. Oh yeah. And so I went on a uh, a failed film f- festival, is what I call it, the failed film festival. Um, so I watched Lost in La Mancha about Terry Gilliam trying oh, to wow. make the man who killed Don Quixote, Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau, and Jodorowsky's Dune. So Ooh, my, I really liked that last one. What? I really liked uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. I loved that movie. It's so interesting, and um, I mean. I mean, it was really interesting watching them all as a group because, like, Richard Stanley is frequently interviewed in Jodorowsky's mm-hmm. Dune, and then also watching Lost, the 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 one about Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau. I did not realize when we watched the movies um, based on Heart of Heart of Darkness that Heart of Darkness was Conrad's ripoff of Island of Doctor Moreau, and mm-hmm. um, so like it, it was more through lines than I realized, especially like watching that one after watching the stuff about. Um, after watching hearts of darkness about making apocalypse now watching basically like instead of like a very established and uh and skilled director not going from that to watching like kind of a kid who had never made a big movie before but who was also a crazy person um yeah i mean my takeaway sort of uh, is that i would rather work for terry gilliam richard stanley or jodorowsky than <laughs> i liked all three of them better i <laughs> And you know what? Like super counterintuitive. I love Richard Stanley, and he's like, like we would not get along. I don't think. Yeah. Man, what an interesting dude. He wouldn't like me back, but I like him. I wish I could like replay some of the things he said from the Hearts of Darkness episode because they're yeah, especially Richard. Have you seen Richard Stanley's? Uh, he finally made a movie. 
Yes, he's made uh, a movie like a year ago or this yeah, year. Yeah, with Nick Cage, yeah. the color the, of the HP Lovecraft yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. His Lovecraft trilogy. I, capital H, hated that movie. Hey, hey, hey. I, I did look it up in the re- the reviews made me not want to watch it yeah um he's doesn't seem like he's like the like a great dude but his vision for dr moreau was really interesting i mean it is really funny that like the you know the moreau like the island dr moreau was such a disaster between like the two directors val kilmer's ego but like it is also like it is the movie that inspired mini me in Austin yeah, Powers, yes. because the, this. Yeah. Uh, the little person who, by the way, the stories about that guy, like when his hit the all the kind of like Brando's hype went to his head, and he yeah. would like just walk around and punch people in the dick. No, he was like yeah, a tip of yeah. a kite. Um, yeah. Just hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it was but, crazy. But yeah, the, the fact that that movie gave us like these weird little pop cultural things. In other ways, it's just interesting. It's super interesting. I liked all. I what I one of the things I liked about Richard Stanley is like I don't I don't I'm not a, a believer of the pagan arts, but he hired a warlock to do a blood ceremony because he was nervous about a business meeting. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like the cutest use of black magic. He was like, I hope this meeting goes well. Yeah. Could really use this for my career. Did you look up the trailer for? I I don't know if we ever figured out if it got released. But the actual um, Don Quixote movie Terry Gilliam ended up making. Yeah, it did get released, and I, I have, I, it's, I, um, it's on my list to try to find it and watch it. But I have not. I didn't actually watch the trailer. But yeah, the I always think of Lost in La Mancha as like there's just like a scene in that movie I think about a lot when they were told they had like the skies clear. Yeah. Uh, and instead, the French military was doing jet test bomb uh, testing, <laughs> test runs over the top of it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, just hilarious. I will say that like it does seem like both Richard Stanley and Coppola like kind of should have seen the rain coming because they went to to the rainiest parts of the world, whereas Terry Gilliam went to this incredibly dry region, and then the one storm of the year happened on a day that was pre- predicted 0% chance yeah. of rain and made the dirt the wrong color forever. Yeah. I, like Of all of these I movies, mean, Terry Gilliam is the one that actually feels like is the least his fault because well, his lead yeah, actor broke his pelvis. Versus like things that... Like, yeah. I mean, I think in Coppola's case, it's like, I think he just thought that he was like a king or something and that he could just like go somewhere and, and, or, and make it, his will would be done, you know? Terry Gilliam is such like a notoriously, especially now, like kind of a shitty person with just horrible, bigoted views mm-hmm. that I think a lot of, he is also has this reputation as the most cursed filmmaker in movie history. Like he had, so starting with, he always had problems. Like he had all the stuff that happened with Brazil that we covered. He had this failed version of Don Quixote. A few years later, he was getting another version up, and it was right about to start shooting it when he got hit by a car and he broke his back. Oh uh, no! And then on his next movie was the one uh, that was Heath Ledger's final role, and he died exactly oh, halfway right. yeah, through yeah. filming. Oh man! Um, and then he had like just like. A two or three other horrible setbacks. Just freak accidents and things that were out of his control. But he yeah. sort of notoriously had like a 10-year run of the worst luck you That's could so on terrible. every single I, set. I, on uh, the set, he actually seemed like a very reasonable and professional director. Richard Stanley apparently never like showed up to set. He just like hung out in his treehouse, so that didn't seem that professional. And Jodorowsky is like 
doing things that are impossible. And so <laughs> it's all different kinds of crazy, but really interesting dudes. Have I you ever seen see. any of Jodorowsky's films? I would no, love but I want to. Yeah. Oh my god. I, I don't I don't know how you'll react to them, but I, I, I don't think they're for me, but I am definitely I, he was talking about one of his artists is like, I watched his movie, it's him and his naked son, and then somebody poops a golden turd. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that was just the fe- the vibe of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've only ever seen El Topo by him, but I liked it a lot. And then El Topo has, I think, arguably one of the greatest endings in movie history. Ooh, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Hunter? The sort of I haven't very... seen it in a very long time, so I actually can't remember. How it it just this... Let me ask you a question: Did they get to the topo? Uh, I don't want to spoil it for you. Okay. Uh, okay. The but... Holy Mountain has a really good ending as well. He's really good at coming up with a very just like... wild endings. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, the Holy Mountain ending is like fourth wall breaking insanity, and it's think... great. Well, okay, because. That's what El Topo is too. It just completely breaks the oh, okay. uh, the reality yeah, he, of the movie. Anyway, interesting g- mad geniuses. Um, I I know I've talked for it a lot, but I just want one more super quick thing that I because I I'm not gonna I, we don't have time to make this a, a Vietnam running joke. So I mentioned this Pilgrim movie uh, that I watched for Thanksgiving, this documentary, and I just want to tell you guys a quick fun fact that I, my main takeaway from this movie um, is that uh, like we're all old enough to know that like we learned the stupid pilgrim myth when we were kids and then mm-hmm. later we got the like actually it's really bad and fucked up and that was not right right we got that revision later yeah yeah what but there's like a a third revision where it's like actually worse in some ways better in other ways and more complicated in a lot of ways um <laughs> that i got out of this oh, adulthood <laughs> yeah very adulthood exactly it's a classic adulthood experience but the one thing i was not expecting was for this all to hinge on beavers so basically right right okay so so basically the pilgrims are like a very small cult that got duped by a businessman into coming to america and who and the guy just didn't care if they lived or died but assumed they'd send him back some riches and they mostly died he lost a ton of money but then in 1627 bam england is at war with france and spain the price of beaver fur goes through the roof because those are all the people bringing the beaver fur over. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, the cultists are like one of the few groups that can send a bunch of beaver fur home. And so the businessman gets rich and is like, hey, this is an easy business. And then they send like a thousand ships full of people to come. And basically, that's where America gets rolling. Um, like, there's a lot of things that led to America becoming what it is, not the least of which is barbarian acts of violence and racism. But I just did not realize that the market for cute hats made out of beavers was as instrumental to our founding as some of those other terrible things. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's I crazy. Mean, the history <laughs> of hats, if you... It sounds really boring, but... It look, sounds like for sure a thousand-page book I would but, read. But if you look up, like, the straw hat riot or, like, the first time someone wore a top hat in public that also caused the <laughs> riot, like, there's a very weird history with hats throughout when, like, in the nineteen, like, early 1900s, like, wearing animals on your hats were really popular and then, like, yeah, almost drove yeah. a bunch of animals well, to extinction just yeah i mean basically yeah like as people who are living crazy. on the west coast basically like all of the exploration of the west coast before gold was found was to get beavers and otters to make cute hats so 
the the founding and the shape and a lot about the United States was shaped by beavers, and I I, I think that gets under remarked upon. All right, I'm right, talking actually, about real, real fast. Uh, yeah. b- uh, bef- b- before we get to hunter, I want to say not about uh, beaver, but about the documentaries you watched. I just wanted oh, yeah, to yeah. say one more interesting thing of looking back over what we have covered. Uh, and sort of like a lot of those documentaries you mentioned are really great and really like funny and have like nice stories. But what makes Jodorowsky's Dune so uh, impressive is that when you look back on like the films that we have covered, so many of them are only mm-hmm. there because of this failed project. Like it's it's I mean, how? A huge, well, I mean, the fact that like the alien was yeah. all of that work got started on this on that movie right. and then got reused in Alien. And that happened with a lot of different projects. A lot of the stuff generated for Jorioski's Dune was ended up being reused by a lot of these artists later down the line and made just so many like important things. So much of like the Star Wars iconography comes from that. Um there's just all these all these things that come from this project that never got made and it just makes the the legend about it even more interesting and i think it's something that's like definitely worth covering in this sort of i'm glad we got to bring it up in the film school section of this podcast because it's a cool documentary to see about like even failed pieces can still like have huge impacts on the people who got to do you know it's just cool just cool stuff also yeah for people who are interested in learning more about film i also felt like i learned a lot from watching these projects fail about like the different roles people played and how they interact with each other. And like one thing that like, uh, well, Terry and Terry Gilliam's movie and Richard Stanley's movie and, um, Coppola's movie all had problems with big actors. Um, but they also had problems with, uh, with like the, the physics of the world about rain and stuff, but they all, and they also had negotiating with people, on location to get locations and sets. They all had interactions between producers and studios and directors that I didn't know that much about before. Really, really, uh, yeah, super interesting trilogy to learn more about movies. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Hunter, what, what else have you been watching? Yeah, so um, I have been re-watching uh, a show uh, that I would say, uh, the first time I watched it, I really, really loved it. I've never watched it never rewatched it but i'm watching it with elena for the first time it's called the leftovers um, oh yes yeah great show yeah. um a little bit of background so um uh you guys know the show lost right yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, yeah so i was like a losty like i was like oh, really you're a lost, lost. like same, I, yeah. I was same here yeah i was yeah. a big lost fan so i was i was watching it you know week to week as it was coming out i spent a lot of time talking with my friends about like theories and stuff about what was going on in that show. And then the way the ending of that show played out actually kind of, it kind of broke my heart and, and and I was annoyed, uh, upset even, um, at the creators. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, lost was like hotter than hot when it was on. Um, so they all got to go off and do other things. And I happened to follow, you know, this guy, Damon Lindelof, who was a showrunner on Lost, uh, he made a few other things. Um, he worked on, uh, I think he did the script for Prometheus, which was a movie I went and watched and I did not like. And so I'm just like following this guy, not liking anything he's doing. And then he makes this show, The Leftovers. And I hear 
that it's good, but I don't trust it for like years. I won't watch it. And then eventually I sat down and watched it and I really loved it. So that's the background of it. Um, mm-hmm. I went into this show feeling like, oh, I'm not going to like this. And in a way, if you're somebody that saw Lost and did not like the ending, I 100% recommend that you not even listen to anything else I'm saying and just watch The Leftovers. Because in a lot of ways, it feels like a uh, response to some of the things that maybe you didn't like about Lost. Go ahead. I mean, well, I, like, I think Leftovers is a great show, um, regardless if you have a ties with Lost. But I think if you have a very heavy tie with Lost because Leftovers isn't just a great show that is kind of like a reaction uh, to like hit, hit the way he saw fan reaction. It's, sure. it's yeah. also a huge part of what especially drives the first season is because the reaction to Lost was so harsh and David Lindelof got so much shit. He, I mean, he had to like, he's talked about like how he had to start going to therapy. He had to get rid of all mm-hmm. social media because he can't, for years, he could literally not be on social media without everyone telling him how much he sucked for ruining Lost, right? It just became, and this huge thing, He would, and he just started like going through these huge bouts of depress- depression and like trying to rewrite it in his head and thinking about what he could do differently, and it became this very traumatic experience, which is kind of a silly thing to say, but if you look at like sort of Hirsch fan communities, it's kind of, he, he you know, got it right. the worst. And so, like, The Leftovers is so much a conversation about, like, I think, like, the way trauma affects people and all this stuff, but also this idea of creator and fan and the way, like, if you, I, I was really into all all of his uh, television work and, like, a lot of, like, The Leftovers was, there are things in The Leftovers that are them responding to specific critics who were writing about the shows oh, in dude. earlier seasons I, right? like, and, I mean, I maybe he shouldn't do quite enough therapy. No, that I mean, feels I, like that can't possibly be the takeaway from I, that. I love it. I genuinely think the leftovers no, is it, it, it's great. I mean, it's, it's and I, let me explain the show a little bit because actually we ha- haven't talked about what the show is actually about at all. Um, so, and it's funny because this is actually there are like several shows that started around the same time that have the exact same premise. And as far as I know, they're all bad except for the leftovers. But the premise of leftovers is that one day, uh, for no reason that anyone can decipher, um, a bunch of people just disappear. 2% um, of the Earth's population. Right. They, they, um, they, they seem to be... Uh, it's very similar to getting taken up to heaven. Yes, the yeah, rapture. It, it's literally... Rapture-like. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not It's not corresponding to any religion. It's It seems random 2%. So it's not clear that it's... It's like, yeah, if I mean, the rapture was... Well, like, a lot... I'm, so, I mean, a lot of the show... The show is called The Leftovers, right? So it's literally about people reacting to this traumatic thing that happens. And that's like the whole show is really just about people reacting to that thing that happened. Um, and there's a lot of like, you know, some people, some people react to it in various ways, but there, there are people that are like, Oh, we, we want to try and figure out why this happened or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think you can even just from that, maybe like get a hint of like what it might be talking about with like lost and stuff. Um, but it is, uh, and, and I feel like connecting it to Lost, I feel like I may be underselling it. It's just that I really don't want to give away what is so special about it. Um, I will say, without a doubt, the performances in it are crazy amazing. Like, like yeah. scary, awesome, amazing, like crazy amazing. And um, also, amazing uh, in it. Yeah, go ahead. Ma- uh, Max Richter's, who's been one of my favorite composers. I'm not like a huge fan of composers. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but I have listened to Max Richter for a long time because he's fucking phenomenal, and he had never done a TV show before, and he does all the music for The Leftovers, and I genuinely think it's one of the best scores um, ever. It, the music in The Leftovers, yeah, the piano in The Leftovers, it you could it could just make me cry instantly, just out of context. Like if I just hear, like if I'm just like in a. I, I could be anywhere and just hear that piano start and it'll just get me. It gets my, my heart yeah, pumped. It is, you know, it is very losty in, in the sort of like the surrealness and it's very Twin Peaksy as well. So I think if you like those shows, um, but also I just think it's, it's like you said, incredibly well acted. Um, the storylines, I, uh, I think get better. Uh, I think the there's only three seasons of it. There's ten episodes each season. Uh, I really enjoyed the first season. Uh, but what I always tell people is, like, the first season is really good. The second season is my favorite season of television of all time, up there with, yeah, like, season three good. and four of The Wire. I think it's, like, in that pantheon of, like, just... Oh, you're you're not a season two of The Wire guy, apparently. No, I, I like all of The Wire, but I think three and four are the best of... I think two is the best season of The Wire. Oh, man, the doc. Two through four are arguably the best seasons of The Wire. I mean, one through four is arguably the best seasons of The Wire. They're all very good. The point is, fuck season five of The Wire. We all agree. Hey, season five of The Wire, like a Fincher movie, is still better than most shows. Like, the the worst of The Wire is still, you know, incredible TV, but it's definitely a step down. I want to say one last thing about uh, Lost in relation to uh, Leftovers, because that's just kind of the angle that, because I just don't feel like spoiling anything about the show. Um, for In my personal experience, the thing about Lost and the ending of Lost that I think kind of took me aback, and, and maybe I, and I think I was in some ways kind of foolish, but I think there were a lot of other people that were kind of fooled by this too, is when Lost ends, one of the things you kind of realize about it is that the show is very spiritual, and I and I knew that there was a lot of spirituality in the show, but when Lost ends, it's kind of like and the spirituality part that was the main part, and I'm like, what? I, that wasn't the main part to me. Like that's not right. how I felt watching the show. The leftovers from even the premise, which I, all you know about this show, the listener, is the premise right now. You, you're not going to make that mistake. So like like Damon Lindelof, I think clearly likes to go at at this stuff from like uh and when i say spirituality i kind of mean specifically christianity or maybe i should should say primarily christianity um but there's a lot of that in the leftovers and it's not like a surprise that that is the primary focus it is it is at the forefront and you you don't feel tricked i think in a way that some people felt uh, with loss, and I certainly felt that way with loss. Well, however, I was not the type of person that would have ever given Damon Lindelof any uh, guff. If anything, I mean, obviously, Damon Lindelof, even with how Lost played out, he gave me five seasons that of that show that I really, really loved with no frankly at all. If David Lindelof was on Twitter in a conversation with you, you'd be like the only person on Twitter who didn't have any explaining to do. <laughs> you'd be like, I, I left you alone. I thought I was good. You know, I I do. I've been thinking a bit about Damon Lindelof and uh, Lost recently because I was having a conversation with about uh, Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. how, and in, in, in a lot of ways, especially as I've gotten further and further away from it, I I think the ending of Lost is fine. It's really the whole final season that's pretty bad, but mm-hmm. it's it's not as bad as I think. Um, 
is sort of was been talked up to be and i think a lot of the complaints people have about it are people who genuinely misunderstand the show like i can't even say how many people have been like oh so they were dead the whole time and lost and it's like no that's clearly right. not what happened you just yeah yeah there is a lot of, there's a lot of bad faith uh reactions to loss but i do think i do think there is like especially if if, if you were to go back and rewatch like season four and season five of lost um the show's science fiction elements take center stage to such an extent that I think what happened to a lot of people was that, Oh, this was a secret sci-fi show the whole time. Like this was like actually just building to be a pretty hard sci-fi show. And then in the final season, it kind of does like another flip Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel earned, even though if, I guess what I'm saying is that like leftovers actually taught me who this guy was. And now I get him, even if I don't necessarily like those aspects of lost anymore. um, I still, uh, I get, I get the guy a lot better and I know where he's coming from. uh, And I, I have a kind of, I don't know, like a refound respect, I would say. Also, the watch, it helps that the Watchmen TV show that he did yeah, next was I, really great, uh, What so. I always say about Damon Lindelof is like on TV, he's pretty much, I think, a great hitter, just home run after home run. In movies, that's what you want to avoid him. Because uh, his movie <laughs> scripts were very good. But what I was saying about Game of Thrones is because I was thinking about how, like, you know, the ending of Lost is so notorious. I remember. I, uh, I quote, I think it was from Georgia Martin, like right around the first or second season of Game of Thrones, when he was at Comic-Con and he, he was asked about the ending of the show. And he said his biggest fear with the show was that they would pull a Lost and have a bad <laughs> ending. And I remember that was like one of the final things that made Damon Lindelof get off social media because he yeah, goes like, fuck you, man. Like, we we made a show like you're another creator. You don't need to be like using us as an example. And then I think the irony is that the uh, just final saying, season to call it Game yeah. of Thrones thing now. No, I mean yeah, exactly. The final season of Game of Thrones makes the final season of Lost look like the fourth season of Lost. Yeah, that's you know what that, I mean. That's really good because the difference between the two of them, like Lost, the final season of Lost is like a swing. Yeah. And, 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 it's up to you whether it's a swing or a miss or a hit or a miss. But Game of Thrones season eight is like someone just doing their fan fiction idea of what how this should end. Like, and then yeah. this happens. And this happens with no. It's not like in season eight they're like, all right, now we're going to throw them something really strange, and then we decided we didn't like it. No, it's that people got exactly what they expected, and it just wasn't very good. Yeah, I mean the characters in Lost were still the same characters in Lost mm-hmm. at the end of it. The characters in Game of Thrones are a completely different character by the end, like, and not in a good way. They're just like they become dumb idiots when the plot needs them to well, be. Yeah, because they couldn't figure out, like, they didn't care to figure out where everybody belonged. They were just like, you know what? You don't make sense anymore, so you're just here, or we'll kill yeah. you. Uh, like that. And they just, like, I mean, I think, like, like I think you could do spinoffs from Lost, maybe. But I know they're planning to do a bunch of spinoffs for Game of Thrones. But I honestly think the finale of Game of Thrones killed all hype for any of that. Like, Game of Thrones, for ten years, was the biggest thing in our culture. Yeah. And yeah. since then, it is completely evaporated. Disappointment of Game of Thrones, and I was not a. Wa- I gave up on it years before that. But the the collective disappointment when that came out is 
like a very I felt it. I felt it hard yeah, and I was the, not in the world. The only cultural like thing that Game of Thrones left is a bunch of kids who are all named after a psychotic genocidal monster now. Uh, who are who are gonna be entering middle school in a few years and have to tell people like, yeah, I was named after that stupid Game of Thrones show, I guess. Uh, but yeah, if I was gonna do a spinoff, I would suggest it'd be more about the throne. I feel like that chair <laughs> is fucking wild, and it does not get enough credit. Yeah. Well, you know, it's actually not wilder in the books. Like in the books, it's like ten thousand swords, like from all the different. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? It's you- not a comfortable chair. I feel like if you're the king, you should get the most comfortable chair, not the one made the most out of swords. All right. I mean, why we do you think that last guys... king went so crazy? Chair yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uncomfortable yeah. the whole time. All right. We have so much to do. Um, let's jump into the reason we are here today. It is the slightly condescending film school final exam. We've been studying for it all year. This is our, uh, I, what is, uh, where did I put this? 48th episode of slightly condescending film school with at least two bonus episodes. So, 50 episodes, 50 days of school. It is time for us to finally get to the final exam. So each professor has brought me a test, and then I have brought a test, and then we are all together going to take a real film school final exam. So uh, let's start out with Hunter's test. What Professor Hunter, what do you have for us today? Okay, so last, for the midterm, I did just kind of a fun one. And easy yeah, one. I was really hoping this one would be fun, too. No, no. Oh. Um, I, I have I have a but question. I like fun. Mine mine is really just a question, and it's okay. an exciting question because I really want you to have an answer for this. Okay, but I but I feel like it's it sounds simple, but maybe it isn't. Um, Alex, mm. and no helping him, Anthony. I okay, will do. Alex, what does the director do? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I I will say everything that I thought a director did, it turns out the first assistant director does. <laughs> and I think that's fucking stupid. I do not think that this is a good system. Mhm. Um you can put put it in your own words. Don't even yeah. try don't try and nail some sort of dictionary definition. Just like what is your understanding of like what their role is actually. Um, one of the things that makes this harder, this is a, what a fat, what a great question. This is the perfect film school finals question. Um, but also one of the things that makes it so hard is that in a lot of these things I've seen, the producer is also the writer or the producer is also, or the director is also the writer. The director is also a producer. And so that makes it more complicated. Although I think at this point I'm clear enough if you're a producer, that means you go to a lot of meetings. Um, and if you're the writer, that means you write. So that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So it, I just I do want to peek in a little bit high. I think Frank mm-hmm. Miller coined, uh, summed up what the writer does in Hollywood, uh, mm-hmm. which is you stand there like a fire hydrant and let a bunch of dogs piss on you all day. <laughs> uh, I believe that's the technical role for what yeah, the yeah. screenwriter the does in Hollywood. <laughs> I I mean I would assume that some writers just like turn in a draft and then leave, right? You don't actually have to be there every day to be pissed on. No, they'll piss yeah. on. They'll email you the piss. They'll mail yeah, yeah. you <laughs> wherever you are. You got an email piss, digital piss. Wow. Um, 
wow. Uh, okay, so so um, here, so here's what the director does not do. Um, <laughs> the director does not um, pick the camera lenses. Um, the they does can. not set up. Why, why not? Can. Right. Well, okay. So <laughs> the director does not necessarily. So here's what I th- okay. So going into this, like literally a year ago, I would have said what a director does is they put their fingers in the L seven weenie position, uh huh, and then holds it up so they can see what just that much, like a brownie amount of their the world in front of them looks like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I mean that's then... my favorite aspect ratio, the brownie aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know yeah. a lot of people like to watch oh, movies and cupcake these days, <laughs> but I like to go oh, with man. classic brownie square. That I... is the ideal <laughs> aspect ratio. Every, everybody these days is trying to do an eclair, and that's just oh, yeah. Well, I hate when someone takes a brownie shaped film and then formats oh, it in a clear shape. Oh, yeah, and, and it's just like you're losing the edges, you know? Yeah. I don't care if you don't want the nice edges, you know? But I want and to I, For years, I was able to say, no, the reason why you should hold your phone sideways is because your eyes are sideways and not stacked on top of each other. It makes fucking sense. But then it turns out the world was like, so? And then now everything is tall video. And anyway, um, I lost that. And now I think we might even evolve to have our eyes be on top of each other to make Instagram work better or TikTok or whatever. Okay. Back to work. Yes. Um, Back to the question. The director talks to actor. Okay. Here's what I, here's here's my, here's my actual definition. I, I believe the director's job is to get good performances from the actors Mm -hmm. and to go to a lot of meetings. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think Hunter would have also accepted just um, they direct. <laughs> I, I think that's don't what Hunter was looking for. Me. Don't think it hadn't occurred. I thought I would get too much shit if I took that. Oh no, no, no! I, I, I would have, I would have caught hurt, hurt you there for for not being specific enough. You know, well, I, I believe so. Like. Every like it seems like the director does as much or as little as they want. That's kind of true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's I, fair to say. Like like watching um, these movies where the director is also like the producer and the writer, um, and like with Terry Gilliam or or Richard Stanley or something, where it's like watching them blow it. They're in charge of the vision of the movie. But mm-hmm. there's definitely movies where it seems like the director or like, so for example, then the director who came in after Richard Stanley and finished on Dr. Moreau was like, fuck vision. I turn in shots. I get right. stuff on film yeah. and send it to the company that owns this. And then I get paid. Yeah. So I you mean, have to be in charge of vision. Kevin Smith and David Fincher do the same job. You know what I mean? It is, it is a, there's a lot of things. Oh, there's man, from so there. crazy. Kevin and David. <laughs> jeez that's so funny well i mean i i did read in one of my uh books about the movie industry that one of the reasons like the one of the reasons everyone says but what i really want to do is direct is because it's actually can be a very easy job because there's other people to do all the parts of it if you don't want to do the work totally. so like you, you could have an ad who really actually makes the movie and you can have producers that handle the vision and and getting everything to the bosses but then and who can, gets in trouble if the movie sucks you know yeah. what i mean that's well, so that's yeah, I do I do think that the director yeah the director is also it's sort of like the manager of a of a soccer team where 
you're the one who gets fired if we're losing, even though it probably wasn't your fault. There was a lot of other things going wrong, but you're the person who gets sacked. You sack the manager, you sack the director, right? You don't, you don't fire the AD probably. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that would be too disruptive because that, that's someone that feels indispensable because they are uh, actually the head of a department. Whereas the director is just head of all the departments. You know what I mean? You've already got somebody that's one step lower that is overseeing everything. Well, but head of departments, all the departments is like, that's also a great way to say it. But it sounds like a lot of the time they're also still taking directions from people. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I think the way I think the, if I were to come up with a definition, I would just say really all they do is decide what makes it through. Right. Like what they're just looking at things that are being brought to them. And sometimes it's their own idea. Sometimes it isn't, though. Um, and saying yay or nay. like I. I feel like that's kind of have parts of that too. Totally. So they're not they're they're not the end all be all, and a lot of times directors don't even get to decide what the cut of the movie is going to be at the end. Right. Right. So, that's why they all have their own cut on the back of the DVD. But, but what I mean is that in in a in a think of it more like a workflow type thing, the uh, the art the head of the art department is going to say, look at the director and say this or this, like. Right, 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 right. That to me is with a lot of meetings. Is that everybody will ask you ask you questions? Everyone asks the director a question. Yeah, and you know, there's also there's you know again the sort of the spectrum of like you uh, a director's job. If I had to sort of sum it up in the simplest way, I'd be the the person who is responsible for the day to day actual filming, right, and everything that gets through, like Hunter said. And there, there's a huge goal between there are directors again who kind of come in and. The art department will show them two options and they pick one. And then there's also directors, you know, the Nancy Myers of the world, the David Finchers, the people who were like, man, they fucking hung out and went through 40 different versions of beige because this one wall wasn't exactly right. So we just kept bringing in new ones, you know? And so it's like, in the case of like, uh, Jodorowsky, he's also like, it is a lot like a, it seems like a lot like a soccer manager. Like he's also doing the speeches every day, getting you yeah, rallied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also sort of like, he's also in charge of like hiring and morale in a lot of ways, but he's also the writer producer of that movie. So I don't know. He's, he's taking it all, but like, well, I would say so hiring is more like an agreement thing, right? Like the director says, I want so-and-so and then the money people have to decide if that's okay or whatever. Right. Yeah. But he was still like meeting with them and trying to get them excited about the picture. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, oh, this is, what that, a great, what a great simple, but not simple question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's just the, a fun thing to ponder because it like, I don't feel like anyone can answer that question the same way. It's just such an odd, it's such a weird job when you think about mm. it. it. I think it's funny because sometimes uh, people think that it shouldn't even exist. Like there have been movies that have been made without directors. Um, yeah, it seems like you could the same way you could like the Oscars last year didn't have a host. Like it turns out if you just skip that part, a lot of it's going to get done anyway. I mean, as but far it might as I know, every time someone has done it, though, it is not good because if there's no one, if each department is just kind of saying we're doing this, it's like the director is the cohesive part of it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Which is weird because that role, like if you don't have a director, do you really not have a director or is somebody like actually doing that role? And you just didn't give someone the the, the title of it, right? You know right. I mean? Well, yeah, and, yeah. In the in the Oscars hosting, it was the robot voice that introduced everybody. It was like totally. well, you're just hosting; you're just not getting paid for it. 
but also at the same time, like the Oscars still had a director that year, right? There was still oh, someone that's there that's true. doing that job. And like, we haven't even spoke, spoke really about like the way an actor, actors need a director, right? Yeah, like, that's very that, true. That is like a huge part of the collaborative process. And if you didn't have that, right, some actors, you know, really want someone to help sculpt their performances and right. give them p- good notes and, you know, help them find the emotionality of a scene or whatever, you know? And some um, people just try to ruin that director's life. Yeah. <laughs> and some, some actors get, find out their wife is leaving them on an interview a week before they start filming and are just kind of in a sour mood for a few weeks <laughs> and decide to take it out on everyone around them. Uh, yeah all right um anthony part two of our four-part final uh exam well i yeah i got sort of want to have a conversation here with Mm -hmm. you um i was sort of thinking about what do people who i actually know went went to film school what what do they what are their defining traits what are the sort of practical uses so mm-hmm. that's what I kind of wanted. <laughs> that practical use is a great question. Yeah, what are sort of the practical uses for uh, a film school degree? So I kind of want to test your credentials there. So okay. I'm going to give you a situation. Um, you're t- uh, let's say you're talking with a bunch of film snobs about a movie. Give me mm. three terms that you could throw out. Ooh, very that good. would make you sound like you know what you're talking about. Just any three things you've learned this lesson, this semester. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, you know we have not been heavy on terms. Um, so <laughs> it's been an informal education. It has been okay, a little yeah, bit informal. No, 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 no. This is a great question. I want to no, think about well, like what were, what were three things I might bring up or three ways I would lead a conversation well, with film snob to see to see a blending in. Rephrase that. Okay, I'll give you a. So I want you to think about the three things, but before that, let me ask you a slightly easier question. Let's say you're trying to intru- uh, impress a bunch of film snobs and. Uh, give me a, a director's name you would not have thrown out a year ago that you would throw out now to sound oh. like you know what you're talking about with movies. Oh man, that's so good. I, I believe your your midterm was just to name some, or Hunters was to name some directors. Or no, yours was to name directors and Hunters yeah. was to what I like or not like. Um, yeah. And I believe that I got like one or two of the 10 directors right. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time around, not a lot, not a high number of directors. But here, um, let's let's role play, okay? You're mm-hmm. trying to impress me, yeah. and I I go oh, so like you know I'm a I'm a big fan of the uh, the Kurosawas and the Dogma oh, yeah, ninety five yeah. guys. Who who are yeah. you guys? Who are your guys? <laughs> who, who are who uh, who are your filmmaking idols? God damn! I like, hate this question so much. <laughs> say that to me. That is totally. Every time someone said that, to me, maybe just want to lie to them right to their face. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that like all three of the ways you've phrased this question stress me out and are hard. Like I haven't. It hasn't gotten easier when you've said it more times. Um, <laughs> just like I a, agree. A name you could throw out for some cred, some 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 film street cred. 
Yeah. Um, oh, that's such a great question. And I am still really bad at names. Uh, so let me guess. You're like George Lucas? Is that your guy? Is that what you're going to say? Let me guess. No, I, would, uh, I would Zach enjoy. Snyder? Is that your guy? Is that. If you bring up if you bring up George Lucas, I would talk about how different Hearts of Darkness would be if George Lucas had directed it. That's a fun thought experiment for me. And yeah, well, except for the movie was called Apocalypse. Now Hearts of Darkness is sorry, the, Apocalypse. Now you're right. I'm so yep, yep. That was the other one. Yeah, they'd be um, like, wait, what? What are you talking about? That's the the uh, that was the documentary. That's what um, they would have said. Why would George uh, Lucas have directed the documentary? God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is um, like, reaction like that like they know what he means but they they won't admit it yeah (laughs) um yeah i mean i i think yeah so that's something that i would bring up for sure um okay let's try to simplify it even more okay i'm gonna give you i'm gonna ask you questions that have very specific answers that you should be able to answer okay 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 uh so like Who's your favorite like Jello seventies horror director? <laughs> Jello? G- Jello. <laughs> what? What? Yellow in Italian. We talked about it on the episode. Oh man, I don't remember that at all. Um, uh, 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 Does that make me think of any of the did, movies that yeah, we have? Did, did we watch a lot of seventies Italian horror films? Be hard to figure out which one we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I I feel confident you're talking about Suspiria, but I don't remember. Um, I don't remember who directed Suspiria. Somebody at home, bring in. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dario Gento. Dario Gento. Okay. Okay, I like Dario Gento. Um, so yeah, like, I, I do kind of want to be a dick. If somebody asks me, like, who are your guys? I kind of want to like give. A, I want to be like uh, um, Miyazaki and Ken Burns and just well, like fun, some pe- people that I do like that would not actually be that helpful to the conversation. Um, I you know. What am I? Yeah, who do I actually like a lot of? Um, it's super hard to tell. Um, oh, uh, um, Lord and Miller. Can I? Is that is that a real answer? Th- these are not like legitimate. Yeah. I mean, they've people. made multiple movies that are very good. Uh, I like all of them. I think. Um, I mean, I like a, almost all of what Fincher has done. So that one's easy. But I don't know that I. I feel weird saying that because it feels broy. He feels like a broy director a little bit. Really? I don't think anyone's ever made that connection with Fincher before. <laughs> I've heard people say that about Nolan, but I don't know about David Fincher being bro broy. I think his early films, if you just look at like Club. Seven and yeah. Fight Club, uh, but I think very everything post Benjamin Button, I wouldn't describe as broy. I mean, one thing that happened this year is that I, it turns out I actually do kind of like Wes Anderson, and that's because, which I've always assumed I wouldn't, and my wife has assumed I wouldn't, and then you guys convinced me that I probably would, and then I did. So that was yeah, fun. Yeah, he makes fun movies. And I, You know, one of the movies that stands out to me from this year, it's really interesting, is Brazil. And we've talked about Gilliam a little bit already today, but like, which I, it sucks that he turns out to be a shitty guy, but I didn't exactly love it while it was happening, but boy, I think about it a lot. So in terms of just like a singularity of vision, the movie Brazil is fascinating. It was like yeah, one of my yeah. one of the most interesting choices. Yeah, hey, I mean, I, early Gilliam is a great pull uh, to sound like you have a very specific. Because well, I mean, yeah, it's always cool to say early of something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it turns out I'm not super into any any Coppolas. That was a I because I felt pretty weird about Bram Stoker's uh, Stoker, and then oh I yeah, also, I forgot we watched that too. I was about to say watch watched. Oh yeah, yeah. We watched, um, but I did. Yeah, like, I, I'm surprised by how much I liked that Dracula movie. I still think about that movie a little bit. Actually, we watched it. I liked that movie. Interesting. We um, watched a it, few films by Ridley Scott. Well, uh, yeah, I do like Ridley Scott things. I think. Um, I, man, yeah, okay. So here, let me let me let me do this then, since I blow it. So I, I feel like if if you were on whatever the rubric is, rubric is, I got very few points on this one. Although well, I think I, I got, did I some... have one more question for you, and I want oh, well, before, you before you ask the question, you ask you, like I want you guys both to answer that question because you guys are in situations where somebody might say, "Who are your guys?" So Hunter, you hate that, but what do you say? How do you get out of that? Or uh, so if I was answering sarcastically yeah uh i would um well no i don't want to answer it sarcastically because i don't want to just be a jerk for fun i think if i really answer that question uh wong car way yes is is my my number one homie uh and i i watch his movies in a way that i don't really watch anybody else you know like to me the idea of watching his entire filmography every year doesn't sound like a waste of time or like a weird thing to do. So I wouldn't even say b- beyond him. I don't even know what to say. I mean, I think uh, I wish we had watched any Tarkovsky because Tarkovsky is such an interesting guy. Cause he died for the movies basically <laughs> uh, literally died for making. What does that mean? Do what? what does that mean? Well, he filmed he a lot of irradiated places. Yeah, oh. and they knew that, and they all died. And but they made a great movie. But they did like they were like, yeah, it was probably pretty dicey. And then they pretty much all died. Yeah, like um, like what John John Wayne's Genghis Khan movie. Uh, they <laughs> yeah. import, I don't know if you know about that, but they imported a bunch no. of dirt in from a nuclear test site for some reason. Oh. And right. oh, most people who worked in that movie died of cancer, including John yeah, that's, Wayne. That's like a- uh, that's like one where they are where it's just very sad i mean it's still sad that that what happened to tarkovsky and stuff but it's just weird because like as far as we know they knew what they were doing and they just did it anyways and that's right. just crazy um i think maybe ridley scott would also be something from this season that i think more about than i used to i mean uh you you spoke a lot about uh Mulholland drive after we watched it yeah, yeah, that uh, one's also stuck with me a lot. Which is still, I, I think, I mean, of all the directors we've watched, uh, like, you know, obviously I have my favorites that everyone does, you know, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Bill Cosby, <laughs> uh, you know, like, man, man even at, you even at a full speed, even at full uh, speed, there was enough time between Woody Allen and the next person that I was like, Anthony, yeah, no, no. 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 Well, the Holy Trinity of film directors, bro. Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Brett Ratner. All right, that's oh it. Uh, but no, uh, I mean, of all of everything we sort of watched, I think sort of the most consistent, obviously, John Carpenter. We watched Halloween. Yeah. Uh, he's one of my favorite filmographies. Yeah. Um, the uh, David Lynch, I'm obviously a huge fan of. Uh, 
Ridley Scott can meet be so hit or miss, but he's also made a million movies. And then a lot of stuff like Carol was a movie I didn't really I had heard about, but I haven't seen much of that director stuff. Uh, but I've kind of rewatched a lot of his stuff since then because I liked it so much. Um, uh, okay, yeah, so now, now give me part three of your question. Wait, what? Sorry. You had part three of a question? Oh, yeah. So this is uh, a pretty important one. I want you to answer without thinking about it. Just shoot just shoot me off an answer, okay? I'm going to say three things to you, and I need you just to pick one, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Nomad, Street Kid, or Corpo? This is such. This is so. This is what a weird bit. Yeah, I don't get it. Just why, answer why not? Just, just, just answer. Just answer. Oh. Uh, no, Matt, for sure. Okay, okay. Cool. Uh, that's the class I'm going to play inside. Of. I just needed. An, I had a tough time <laughs> choosing, so I thought I would ask you. Yeah, yeah oh, it's okay. funny because I'm struggling with that exact same choice right now too, and I'm kind of jealous that you found a way to just make it arbitrary. Man, that's okay. That is fun, but just for just so you know, that could have been a thing we talked about a lot, and I had forgotten. That's how ready I was for that. Okay, so part three of our finals is uh, this is it's technically a study guide for the final test. It's hard to find actual finals. Yeah, um, but this was from a film school a, st- a film school study guide that was called Final Jeopardy. So they're technically kind of in a Jeopardy uh, structure, um, but we don't actually have to jump around the board. Instead, I would just say um, I have five categories and five questions in each category. We're going to take a category at a time. So, and we might not get through all 25 because it might be a lot, but do you guys want to start with structure and meaning, mise-en-scene and cinematography, sound and editing, genre and authorship, or documentary and animation? So I guess it's five topics, but all of them are two topics. I I would say just start at the beginning there. All right. Yeah. Let's start at structure and meaning for 100. Define plot. Oh, my God. What happens? Look, it's a question. Yeah, what and happens is a good way to put it. What happens yeah. in the story? Yeah, that's fair. What? Ha- yeah, literally what happens is well, probably the best way to put okay, it. Okay, so maybe you guys aren't full film stu- school students because specifically um, – it's anything visible and audibly present in the film, including non-diegetic material. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, anything that and, happens. Yeah, but you did not say any whether it could be diegetic or non-diegetic. And I have to know, I am I going to feel lot after I watch this? I don't necessarily agree with the idea that... I mean, this this is a study guide for the definition of plot in this specific class. Uh, and... Yeah, that, that's why I gawked it at this question in general because plot is a yeah. Let's do, let's, let's do let's do yes, do a tougher one. Look it up. Um, what are four of the five? Name four of the five principles of film form. There Jesus are five Christ. principles of film form. Name uh, well, name as many as you can of the five film forms. See, I don't feel like. I don't get what that, uh, like, what is that specifically in reference to? Five principles of film form, which we're going to get. The five um, principles of film form are function, similarity and repetition, difference and variation, development, unity and disunity. So what type of class is this that the study guide is for? You know what? I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) What is the range of narration in Sherlock Jr.? What? What you know the- what? I didn't proof all these questions because I wanted to play along. 
These questions are random as heck, man. Let's go to documentary and animation, Alex. Okay. Okay, Yeah, let's go to... That was the last category. Um, $100 question from documentary animation. What are the four categories of documentary film? Okay. Um, Sports. (laughs) (laughs) Sports Sports porn, yeah. Um, Well... Let's do more. Animal cruelty cruelty and talking heads. You're right. Those are the four the four uh the four categories of documentary film. Sports, porn, talking heads, and animal cruelty. Did we get Um, any? We were very close. The answers were observational, analysis, persuasive, and aesthetic. Man, this is a lame study guide. Yeah, let me um let me tell you something. Whoever wrote this never stood in a porno documentary. I can tell you that. <laughs> Fucking what distinguishes weird. what distinguishes direct cinema from cinema verite? Oh, okay. Well I can define what cinema verite is. Mm-hmm. Cinema verite is like uh where it 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 feels like just real life, like a like a slice of life style. Um and things aren't like specifically like st- like staged for like drama it just feels um almost i mean making saying that it's documentary like would be maybe a little well, misleading this is specifically in the category of documentary so yeah what does it, it mean it, in the context of documentary it's the secret to those kind of questions is you have to think oh, about okay. like, where is that language from and mm-hmm. what was the film style of that time like they would go into like the like the the uh, what was the French movie we watched? The oh yeah, where they do in, in the cafe. Uh, like that's like his very cinema verite style, you know. Okay, like, well, you guys aren't even close. Um, really? Uh, the function of cinema verite is analytic, and its filmmakers see themselves as participants and catalysts, while the practice of direct cinema is dedicated to observational techniques and non-interference with their I subjects. I disagree with that definition of cinema verite, and you can you can just take it right now. Documentary. Oh, okay. Well, I know what cinema verite means, so I guess I don't know in the context of. Can I this just just say, last week I made a point on a, when we were talking about Jeopardy about the importance of Alex Trebek's confidence and how it doesn't allow <laughs> shit like this to happen. And this is exactly what I was talking about. Imagine if on Jeopardy, Alex was like, "I don't know. I I think that's the answer." Uh, the guests would be yelling at him like this. They would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, um, this is not going great, but frankly, I think we're doing fine on time. If we, we're, we're probably better off if we move along anyway. Um, although I did have this other... Let's just do the $500 questions across the board. Yeah. No, none of these questions are good, so let me... I'm switching, I'm switching to a different... I had a backup one just in case. Um, so let me... Wait. Uh, ah, no, I can't. I did bad. Ugh, I did bad. Um, Jesus, Alex. Are you guys familiar with the website Bug Me Not? No. This is my favorite thing. Okay, so there's this this website called Quizlet that had a bunch of like people's study guides, and it's like you have to sign in, and I don't want to sign in because screw Quizlet. I don't want them to email me. I don't want them to have my information. I don't want them to for Quizlet. So you go to bugmenot.com and you look up Quizlet, and it's like here's a login that just a bunch of people use perfect and so they can't bug you for a login so then i now i just have a login for quizlet that's not me um uh all right what is parallel editing i mean parallel editing. 
is that just editing stuff in a parallel narrative fashion or like cutting between two events that events that are happening simultaneously that's exactly right yeah that's exactly right cutting back and forth from scene a and scene b the stuff that is happening at the same time all right what is a dutch angle shot oh i actually know this one Dutch angle, I, yeah, that is, uh, if you ever wanted to take pointed out, if you ever wanted to take a beautiful hardcore immersion therapy uh, in Dutch angles, watch Battlefield Earth. Yes. Almost every oh my shot God. in that movie is the most obnoxious Dutch angle. You, It's it, uh, absurd. Uh, how many Man. Dutch angles are in that movie? Yeah, it's so funny. And as a, as a person who is 50% Dutch, I have to say, I don't feel like that's the thing they should be known for. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it should be a Dutch steamer. You know, when you take your shit on someone's chest. That's not a Dutch steamer. <laughs> it's not a thing. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Alex, you know, Alex. Oh, yeah, you, you're the ex. You're the guy I'm going to go to when I want details on Weird fetish stuff. Okay, um, I uh, but one of the, one thought I had, I forgot to mention to you guys. One thing I really liked from uh the documentary about um Dr. Moreau is it ended with one of the people who worked on the film, and he's like, you know, um, and then we ended up being in one of the worst movies of all time, and um, it still takes a lot of work. And I just liked that as somebody who like watched a lot of the movies that are considered the worst of all time, remembering that a lot of that people it took a lot of work to make the worst movie ever. Yeah, yeah. no one sets out to make a bad movie. Everyone works really hard. And sometimes um, they just end up like that. Uh right. Uh what three pri- what primary things what three things does what three primary things does editing establish? Ooh. Well, I guess like place. <laughs> yeah. Place, yeah. tone, and uh, like pacing. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they said space, time, rhythm, but I think space, tone, and, and pacing are the same. That's pretty solid. What is a circular narrative? Uh, oh, I actually don't really know what that would mean at all. Like uh, a story that loops back onto itself? Yeah. A movie that ends up where it began. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is a J cut? That's the one where you can still see the image, but the sound has transitioned, or it's the yes. Audio from scene B starts before we get into scene B. I've always heard that was uh, an L cut, is what I've heard. There, no, you, yeah, it's whichever. Well, I don't remember which one is which. Yes, but okay, yeah. so to be clear, so a J cut is where audio from scene B starts before we see scene B. Yeah, an L cut is audio from scene A leads into scene B. Do you know what the Kluvishov effect is, Alex? No. It is one of like the most important. It's basically the like the the theory that is the sum of like the power of editing. So the Kluvishov effect is about the power of montage and the way you put two images next to each other to create context. It's something literally every film does, and it's like one of the most important principles of editing. But the idea is like. Imagine if I'm sh- if I show you an image of a body laying in a bed, laying completely still, and then I show you a shot of a close up of like a an old woman crying. You're gonna get a whole story there, right? Right. Because there's while, content. Yeah. Well, if I showed you that same shot of someone sitting in a bed completely still, and then showed you a shot of someone trying to quietly walk through a room, you would get a completely different 
context mm. and story there. So it's about the way uh, you create context from uh, putting two different images next to each oh, other. Honestly, it's happening constantly in the Mandalorian show because the main character wears a bucket on his head. <laughs> yeah, he has like emotional reactions. There's actually a really good meme from the latest episode of that show where apparently I didn't even remember this in the moment because I guess the Kuleshov effect just took control and I didn't even realize it. But there was a part where the Mandalorian walks into a scene and someone says, you look like you've seen a ghost. And he's wearing a bucket. So, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, uh, all right, this is that's good enough. Um, we've you guys. It turns out you actually do know most of the terms. Um, all right. So the last thing I'm going to do is my test for you two to see how much you've learned and grown over the last year. Ooh, I love it, Anthony and Hunter. I need each of you to name one good point. I made during this year Ooh. and you can't repeat. You guys have to think of different ones. Oh, what so is- goes first. Has it a little bit easier? Yeah. Yeah. Has it way easier? Cause you might eliminate the one um, or one of the two. Yeah. Name one good point I've made in 48 episodes. No, not counting today. 47 episodes. <sighs> <laughs> it's funnier if I don't <laughs> <clears throat> Anthony, right, you can pass. You wanna... right. well, I'm trying to like <laughs> I'm trying to recall because the thing is usually once Alex starts making points, I just kind of start seeing red and hearing like <laughs> low this low hum that gets louder and louder till I wake up on a three day bender, not sure where <laughs> I've been. <laughs> Covered in blood usually. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll say this. Um, uh-huh. I mean, and it and it's it's funny because I'm not necessarily wanting to rehash this discussion, but I actually thought Alex that you had a lot of really good stuff to say about Apocalypse Now, um, which is kind of uh, forgive the pun, but it's kind of a sacred cow type movie, and the fact that you kind of came at it from a perspective of not seeing it as a sacred cow, I think gave you um, a more um, a, a critical tone that was a little uh, like illuminating uh, for me, uh, actually, as far as like a, an angle of that. I didn't necessarily agree with exactly your angle, but uh, I remember coming away from that conversation feeling like, wow, that kind of like opened up a whole thing in my head. Um, so I would say that that, counts as in a big way as as a yeah i mean you and you you did text me afterwards to say that it was a good point didn't say it on the air until now but you did you were willing to say it in, po- in private <laughs> yeah i mean i, I, I <laughs> you're such a funny guy i like said it on air now and and it's and you hear me say it and then you're like and you haven't said it until now but i have now said it so yes i, it, I appreciate that i do uh, I, I better uh, than uh, never Alex will always remember the most spiteful thing he possibly can. Uh, but I feel like you maybe didn't listen to what I just said. Now I'm saying you said something, bud, and I've been thinking about it ever since you said it. You know I what mean, I mean? I'm going like, yeah, to kind on. of piggyback off that and okay. you know, sort of looking through um, and sort of my favorite thing about this series, sort of looking back through 
all the episodes we've done is that we've watched a lot of movies from a lot of different um, ranges of things. And something that I found super uh, fascinating about this th- series is not necessarily the movies that Alex has kind of bounced off on, but the movies that I, I think are mostly kind of would be considered sort of the more impenetrable ones that even if you didn't like them, you had this response that was like, I didn't get it, but like, I'm glad I saw that. You know, I'm thinking about like the way you reacted to something like Brazil or Mulholland Drive, or I thought like the conversation about Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stuff that was kind of really, the, the, the things that most studio executives and sort of conventional wisdom would say are not going to be the things that are more easily digestible and fun to talk about. Um, but those are often the things that I thought, you know, because you were willing to like, just sort of let the, you know, the weirdness wash over you. And like, because I think you have a very sort of proactive mind that when stuff is like really finely made that, or like something that doesn't have a lot of friction while you're watching it. Uh, like a lot of people, it's easy for your mind to start like, picking apart little things and pulling at strings. But when a movie's just hitting you with, like, weird thing that throws you off, your mind can't do that, you know? You're so busy trying to, like, pick apart all these other weird misshapen puzzle pieces that you don't have time for that. Uh, and I thought, like, that Suspiria stuff... Suspiria is also in that category, I think. Yeah, Suspiria, the stuff that's just, like... Uh, I think that the things that are more sort of ambiguous about what they are... Uh, even if I sort of like disagree with sort of like uh, certain points, you know, different people made on it. I think that it was like they had there were great conversations and like that's oh, the man. This is things. not the same as me having made a good point. You just said you enjoyed me not overthinking those. And that's like pretty backhanded. I'm going to give you partial credit for this. <laughs> like I get for your directing one, but. It it the fact that it was so hard for you guys both is uh, really important. It was, That's hey, no, no, no. it wasn't hard for me. I just milked it for comedic effect. But I knew <laughs> okay, exactly okay. my answer. I mean, I um, wanted to have an answer that went back further than that. Yeah, I mean, it's just hard to remember. But I mean, oh, you yeah, have- no, of course, I don't remember. Yeah, if I don't look at our list of past episodes, I could not tell you what we've done. I'll tell um, you this. I tell you my biggest disappointment as far as the movies that we've watched together. That Seven Samurai episode, man. That, I think about that, and I still my heart kind of hurts. I feel like we just did not do that movie the the justice that it deserved because that is that's an all timer right there. Yeah, I definitely think we didn't do singing in the rain the justice it deserves. Um, oh, you don't think so? I love. No, we talked about that. it for like sixteen minutes out of an hour and a half episode. Oh, was it was a time management problem, yes, though. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Speaking right. of time management, we have to do one more thing before we go. So that is our finals from film school. But before we go, we have a bunch of uh, mailbag that I've been meaning to get to. Um, first, so let's let's dive into the mailbag, huh? First of all, um, this uh, this first letter comes via text message from my dad, <laughs> um, dad of the show, my dad. Um, he said, "I would like your listeners." to not misunderstand when you said your father was wasted during Vietnam, you meant underutilized and not drunk. Oh, wow. I, <laughs> I, I thought you meant drunk. 
Yeah, very reasonable. Uh, it did not occur to me at the time. We had just been talking to him about Vietnam, and he had mentioned that he had felt wasted during that. That he like, he mm-hmm. kept, like they kept saying like, "Oh, we don't need this position. Go study for that position. Now we're going to train you for this position, and then oh, we don't need that position anymore. Now you go over here and wait for your next." And it did feel like he was underutilized during the war, and he had, he had used the word wasted. Got into my head. I forgot. And that a lot of people during the Vietnam War were on heroin. And so, like, it did not, but that did not connect to me until wow. uh, he talks to me. I said that, I was like, oh, I better not ask any follow ups because that's like a weird thing to admit. So I'm glad he clarified then because a lot of, maybe a lot of people were confused. I do think it's very funny the idea of somebody mad that they weren't used enough in Vietnam. Uh, it's not a very common complaint. That's what he's saying. And two, I think there's a lot of ego in your dad being like, if they had fucking brought me over there, this war would have been over in a week. If they, had, if they had used me better, fucking Vietnam would be the 51st state right now. And they wasted it. I, they fucking give me three guys, two guns, I'll end this war before Sunday. Uh, uh, my my dad told me when I was young the way he had referred to it because um, he was working on nuclear submarines and he was a, he was a missile tech and he had he had mentioned to me uh, he's like if that sounds fancy but mostly I was just like cleaning the deck around missiles that was a thing he said to me as like a fun one off thing mm-hmm. and I was talking to a friend and his dad one time whose dad was who was also in the navy during Vietnam and I told him that and he was like oh yeah that's what people say when they are actually spies. That's like that sounds to me a hundred percent like he was like an assassin or he was some high level uh and my dad insists that's not true, but like that's also what a spy would say. So it's really hard to know. Yeah, your dad is definitely a spy and we just blew his cover. So or did we? Because nobody would believe me, right? It's like maybe the best spy is like well, and this doesn't really logic out. Yeah, well, anyway, I, mean, I think if your dad looks anything like you, he would make a great spy during the Vietnam conflict. <laughs> <laughs> my dad especially in the 70s my dad in the 70s looked cooler than i could ever he, imagine he would just fit right in on the ho chi Minh trail not stick out <laughs> at all just him and my dad if you want a picture especially in the 70s, he had very well he probably had to have it not long for the military but he he had he had a pretty good round curly uh white afro that he he did for a lot of the, the 70s it was a great look actually it looks very oh, cool fine um all right so transitioning from that it related in this case the through line is heroin this is an email from norman hell yeah um uh with the subject heroin makes jazz possible so this is a little little joke this little joke i threw in a couple episodes ago when someone's mentioning heroin and i was like but gave us jazz and uh norman gave me some more information uh and uh, I'll read you some. I'll read you an expert excerpt from it. Um, even during the heyday of 1950s bebop era, the ensuing West and ensuing West Coast cool jazz movement, musicians did not come close to consuming as much heroin and other narcotics as the white American population. This is partially due to the fact that to accomplish any substantial level of proficiency in jazz, musicians must practice six plus hours per oh, day yeah, and perform with jazz. <laughs> Yeah, not does it make yeah yeah uh, not as easy as like when somebody's like, well, I get high and then I produce one two minute digital rap beat per week. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. A well, notable exception was Charlie Parker, whose influence on music has surpassed even that of Beethoven. But he was rare in his ability to function while being highly addicted. 
Um, there are other, there are a few others of regard uh, and influence who used heroin, and that helped create a false narrative connecting jazz to narcotics. Um, but basically, like the 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 summary of it is that um, for also for a lot of um, for a lot of uh, racial reasons, it was less likely for black musicians, largely black musicians, to be doing drugs because they wouldn't have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like a fun. Uh, this is a fun joke that I can do that I uh, from from my current position. Um, and anyway, and and Norman was very clear when I was when I chatted with him a little bit about this that uh, his intention was not to scold, nor did I feel scolded. Mostly just an opportunity for learning that no one has to feel bad about, which is how I think of most emails I get. So I really do appreciate you reaching out. It is it is a reckless joke, and also like as somebody who's like you know very uh, like especially in a time where uh, addiction has like is caused by drug companies and is very profitable for them. It's very frustrating and has caused such a uh, difficult thing in our culture. I feel very bad about this joke. Don't not, not from the scolding. Just wish I had done better. So, well, I mean, as a guy who has never had any issues with drugs or opiates or anything like that, I think the joke's fucking hilarious. I think, I think what kind of <laughs> stupid losers will get caught up in that. Uh, so I say, <laughs> fucking keep at them you know the best thing about kicking a junkie when they're down is they're too high to get up and do anything about it you know <laughs> just all right let me get a little bit more uh that was also serious but now this is also connected to the first text but the through line to this one is uh mom and dad are fighting so going back a few weeks to our apocalypse now episode um there may have uh, been a hint more tension in the air i'm glad you think that i may have made a good point because some tension in the air was noticed by the listeners um mm-hmm. uh to chris wilson uh on twitter at to help to like the with the th and the e and the h in the wrong order anyway at, at the chris wilson uh uh gave the 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 brief scene alex points out that something might be a little toxic or problematic hunter and anthony why do you hate art <laughs> i'm starting there not every not that was the only one that was really on my team um uh at D- daydream 86 says uh, i got so incredibly nervous and secondhand stressed whenever whenever alex voices opinions that cause anthony and hunter to loudly disagree and challenge him um i just scream into the void boys cyber hug it out please stay friends <laughs> um so uh wow, I, I didn't. I did not realize that people would have that strong. That anyone could have that strong of a reaction to that. To be honest, yeah, I did not think it was that noticeable. Although uh, Daydreamer also said it was. It was rife with echoes of the Oscars episode that had my brain twitching with podcast-induced post-traumatic stress listening disorder. And uh, I'm glad you managed to wrap up the episode with jovial banter. I don't even remember what happened on the Oscars episode. No idea. Okay. I have literally no idea what they're talking about. I mean, I can think of a couple of episodes that had a little bit of tenseness and that, uh, whew, I did not remember the Oscars one being part of that too. So yeah, I remember that um, being fun. Um, yeah. Uh, and then one more on the same topic, uh, um, from past sponsor, David, who said just finishing, finished listening to the apocalypse now episode, really enjoyed it. I, I, well, this sounds bad but um you can assume this is read in a friendly tone i'm really warming to you all um (laughs) but what he did say was uh that you uh, specifically me and and uh anthony get along like an old married couple 
the best kind of friendship. Um, remember to phone Anthony and shoot the shit and send him my love. Volatile romances implode unintended. Un- un- so uh, it was definitely going around that there was some tension in that episode that, uh, you know, part of doing a podcast because it's sort of improvised is that as soon as it's over, it's like, Poof! that space is used for the next episode. It's just like completely wiped out. So I did not remember it being that tense afterwards, but. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's like professional wrestling. We gotta we gotta protect the business here and keep up kayfabe. <laughs> you know, it's it's we are simulating podcast discussions. We're not actually, yes. you yes. know, the all of these opinions were hashed out ahead of time between yeah. the two combatants. They actually weren't, and that's why it was tense. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why they weren't, but they that's. If you ask me why there was any tension, if there was any tension in that episode, it, that would be the reason why. If I had well, just I, a little bit of a heads up as what your angle was going into the episode, I think I would have been. Yeah, I, I got to say a big part of it. It's like it's twofold. It's that I do not know how people necessarily feel about a lot of these things. Like I didn't realize Apocalypse Now was a sacred cow the way you described it. I Like. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was so sure it was full metal jacket until I was like halfway into it. Um, <laughs> so like, I do have a profound level of stupidity. Um, but then I also do like, no, I don't say that. That's I do, well, it, okay. I will say like, I'm not, I'm, I, I feel like, yeah, I'm not down on myself. I feel like I have spots. I have moments of profound stupidity that mm-hmm. do tend to find themselves on this show sometimes. And so like not realize it. You, yeah, we did like a whole episode where I didn't realize Meryl Streep was playing two different characters. Like, I, <laughs> like, there's some moments, like, famously. I mean, um, to be fair, I've said this joke before. She's a very good actress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 you, talent, really. Yeah. I had that same thing happen when I saw The Nutty Professor with Eddie Murphy. Didn't <laughs> realize those were all Eddie Murphy. Until the fucking credits came up, boy. I, 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 the problem with that joke is that it's the other way. Is that I knew it was both Meryl Streep. I just thought that was the same character oh. with weird costume changes. Oh, <laughs> dumber yeah. version of that. So it's like it's like if you watch The Nutty Professor and you were like, "Man, Eddie Murphy's character changes drastically from scene to scene. It's weird." Like uh, that would be the dumber way to watch that. I think. Anyway, I think we're doing good. I I do think one of the things that happened with some of the film school stuff is that we, and Hunter and I were talking about this a little bit off the air, which is just that, um, you know, we're not not the people, uh, not the best equipped necessarily to talk about certain kinds of problematic cinema. And, I, you know, like one of the things that I was part of my, you know, my, my agenda that I came with on the Apocalypse Now episode is I was like, this seems bad in some, or this seems tops, toxic in some certain ways. And I found a eloquent Vietnamese writer and that's how we, uh, that's where we went with it. So I like mostly read that writer's thoughts instead of them being like a lot. Anyway, we're not the people for that. All right. We need to wrap up here in just a moment. Um, before we go, I want to do one more, um, infrequently asked question because we've been uh, where meat buddies can write in questions that we will talk about in this segment and uh, specifically segments i i like when we have kind of a uh, yes or no this or that kind of a question so here's our infrequently asked question from patreon sarah from meat buddy sarah buying tv shows on dvd slash blu-ray 
um, to continue on. A waste now in the era of streaming or a good idea? This is an argument that I have with my husband, so I hope you decide in my favor on this one. I can't tip you the scales by telling you which side I'm on. Well, well what are you buying? That's Does it depend on the show? There are shows? Yeah, I, I think it has to do with... I think it comes down to... Uh, are you a physical media person or like, uh, are you collecting a lot of physical media or uh, do you just want all 11 seasons of friends on DVD? You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between those two. I mean, Uh, I, yeah, I have, I'm pretty much not a physical media collector anymore, which I was for a long time. And there was, and, there was a point when I got my, when Megan and I got our apartment in Portland for the first time where I basically was just like, these are not, I'm not carrying all of these boxes. We don't have room for all of this stuff. And also like, and then after that, it was like, well, I just like you pay $15 and you get all music ever written. Uh, it's just like, that's how music works now for the most part. Yeah. I don't idea of taking a, a, mu- a music out of a box and putting it into another box to hear that music is very difficult to wrap my brain around. I the the place where it feels different specifically is Blu-ray for quality, which is not some like you can tell me CD quality. But I just like for, whatever. Uh, I I can't tell, um, but probably I could tell with good Blu-rays versus not. So anyway, uh, so I'm gonna say my answer is no physical media. Everything lives in the cloud. Anthony, whose side do you take? Um, I I think it, like I said, it depends. If you want to collect media. Uh, I think it's absolutely cool, but I also think that uh, my biggest reason to be pro it is slowly being adjusted where a lot of it is like, especially if you're into behind the scenes stuff, I learned so much, especially the film school stuff that I know, because I feel like I was lucky enough to grow up in the the era of DVD special features uh, that introduced me to a lot of these concepts. Uh, but you are starting to get like some special features, especially on like Apple or like Voodoo and stuff like that. So you can get still some of that stuff. But I personally, I'm very much crazy like you, Alex. When I moved a few years ago, I was just like, I can't move all these DVDs again, and I just yeah. got rid of everything. It is crazy to me that Netflix doesn't have a behind the scenes or director's commentary for every movie because those are pretty easy to make. And would be exactly doubling the amount of time I'm spending on your service for this one movie. And I would watch them. I like I loved director's commentaries when I was collecting DVDs. And I love everything behind the scenes. I want to watch a behind the scenes about every movie I've ever watched. I, I love it. I buy Criterion movies. Is right. For, all the bonus stuff. It's so crazy. I mean, they always have the best stuff on it, too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, well, Hunter. Yeah. So my answer is, I actually love where we're at with this. I see no reason to buy... It just depends on what you're buying, right? Like, if you're buying something physical, in my opinion, it better be pretty fucking weird, you know? Like, it better not. <laughs> I mean, it better not just be Friends season three or whatever, you know? Right. What I mean? Now is the time that if you're gonna buy anything physical, it's got to be because it's like, if I don't buy a physical, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, you know? Like, yeah. it's some weird tome or something that you that you gotta have. You know, uh, or, you know, now I feel like if I own any movies, it's because they're like conversation pieces. I have this I've talked about it before on the show, but I have this Ingmar Bergman Criterion box set that is so big that it, it will it still doesn't have a place to live. I don't know. It's just like sitting over there. I don't know where it's going to end up because 
you know, I there the sh- it's not made for it to sit on a shelf. I don't know where you're supposed to put it. Actually, it is gigantic. It is stupidly big. And oh, is wait, that good what? or bad? Oh, it's great. Oh, I love oh. it. I mean, it like as a it, it's great as a conversation piece, but the content of it is so good that I have to own it. You know, um, but I yeah, I don't know where I'm going to put it. Like where it where it will eventually end up. I don't. I have no idea. But it looks. I don't votes for Sarah's argument. It seems like we're like all like so. I'm the least into it. Both you guys are kind of into physical media, but it does not seem like there's any defense for specifically TV shows on on DVD and Blu-ray. That sounds like pretty low on anybody's desire well, I mean, list it, I, again it just comes down to the thing is it like a, a tv show that maybe people don't care about so the rights might go you know like maybe it's on Netflix sure. now, it might go away but again if it's like you know you need to own season five of breaking bad i think i think breaking bad's safe i think you'll probably always be, probably able, able, to be able to find it, it. yeah yeah when i was the, when i was in high school i found like the the clerk's animated series only existed on DVD. Only two episodes ever aired, but it was like, here's the whole series on DVD. And that was like a fun thing to have. And it felt cool and it had a lot of good um, director commentary and stuff. I could imagine something like that now. Yeah. Yeah. But generally it seems like we're, we kind of think TV shows on DVD are probably a waste of a waste in the era of streaming. I hope that is your side, Sarah. If we have sided against you, I understand collectors. I, I don't, I, I am not one, but I really do understand them. Um, but I've watched two episodes of Hoarders, and that made me never want to keep anything ever again. Um, so anyway, thank you for submitting your infrequently asked questions. Thank you for uh, all of our meat buddies. And with that, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to season three of Read It and Weep. We'll be back next week with a quick, not a quick, but a, a bonus wrap up of the year. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our favorite things that we consumed ne- this last year. Not necessarily things that came out this year, but things that we've consumed or done. We're just going to do 10 things that were good from the last year for us. I think it'll just be kind of a positive end to what is the negativest of years, the most negative of years. Um, and then we'll take a couple weeks off for the holidays and we'll be back with season four in January, which we have a lot we're still working, uh, finalizing the plans for that, but I think you are very much going to like it. It's going to be, I think, a really interesting evolution of the format as we continually reinvent ourselves and find something new. But what I can tell you is that I will still have bad opinions, and they will still be mean to me for it. <laughs> we, I really appreciate all of you coming along for this learning adventure. Thank you. If you have more, if you have thoughts about what you really want to see more of or less of in season four, you can send us an email podcast at read-weep.com and if you want to help support the project you can become a meat buddy metreon.com thank you so much for joining me and for uh, teaching me so many amazing things this year professor hunter yeah yeah hey thank you and it's been really great and uh, professor lopez thank you so much for sharing just the, the tiniest corner of your wisdom with me Thank you. Uh, I don't think you're going to get any of those credits you wanted, but we'll see what happens. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I, I think I have leftover credits from College of News, so yeah. Look, look, oh, and both we'll of you. Something both up. Of you. This is really important to me. Both of you enjoy your gaming experience. I know you guys are going to go cyberpunk it up. We did the whole Keanu thing leading up to it. I hope you yeah. guys have a great time. Literally oh, about thank to you. Alright, take care both of you. We'll talk All to right. you next week. Bye. Later, bye. Bye.